I'll get started. Welcome to Ed Leaders, the podcast covering all the interesting ideas about leadership, strategy, culture, and the business of K-12 education. I'm your host, Luke Callier, and joining me each week in the chair is my co-host and colleague, Matthew Irving. Today's guest is Dr. John Collier, who is one of the most experienced principals in Australia, being in various roles for over 30 years. He's currently the head of St. Andrew's Cathedral School and St. Andrew's Cathedral Gurua, the Indigenous school, and prior to that was principal at St. Paul's Grammar in Penrith and founding principal at Thomas Reddell High School in Campbelltown. He's been chair, a deputy chair of a number of organisations, committees, including the HESA, AIS and Anglican Education Commission. So as far as to say, I'm excited to be chatting with Dr. John today. So without further ado, let's get to it. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Luke. Pleasure to be here. Now, obviously, I've uh, covered off a small element of kind of what you've done in your career, but maybe you could elaborate uh, for us a little bit and talk to us about your professional journey across schools in different sectors. Uh, certainly. I began uh, nearly 50 years ago as an English and history teacher in government schools, and I had two positions as head of history in government schools, and then a new position in New South Wales public sector called Leading Teacher, which was designed as a deputy's position, which was a merit appointment, uh, so called, uh, with the intention of shaking up the system. Uh, And it was rather shaking up of those of us in that role, the uh, status quo and uh, aversion to change of many schools. I then became... uh, the youngest government school principal in New South Wales uh, in my thirties, and that was the great honour and joy of founding a new high school. And then I <coughs> went into the Christian schooling sector uh, for twelve and a half years as principal, and I've served twelve years now at St Andrews Cathedral School, which is a large high fee church school, um, and. Concurrently, I've been principal of Gawara, which is a small all-Aboriginal primary school. So uh, many parts to it um, and a journey I couldn't have predicted and, and didn't actually plan. So other than, I guess, planning it, um, sort of, John, we, we talk and you speak um, about the principalship um, not being a job, rather a calling to vacation. So was there a moment in time where you... you sort of, you know, felt called to leadership or was it just purely by accident you fell into it as you describe? I became a head of department when it dawned on me that I was doing the head of department's job um, and he was being paid for it. Uh, so I thought, well, I may as well become a head of department. Um, there was no grand plan in terms of sequencing to become a deputy and, and a principal. Uh, rather, it it just developed along the way. But I always felt called to the vocation of teaching. Uh, I've always been passionate about English and history and about education. Uh, so I've seen myself as like an ordained clergyman in the sense that I have a mission and ministry, a vocation rather than a job. And that's a mindset that has been necessary, I think, to cope with the demands and particularly the hours involved in doing the job. So it's definitely that kind of concept of all-consuming but all of giving of your life uh, in in terms of service and ministry. It's certainly consuming, um, but joyfully so. Uh, Those of us who survived long-term in schools, um, 
I think, find great joy and purpose and meaning in what we do, um, really building into the lives of young people and of staff. Wonderful. Thank you. You've obviously come across many other principals and leaders during kind of your journey in your career. You've talked there around your mindset. Um, do you think that there's a, a high proportion or a high percentage of leaders that you've come across that have shared that mindset? I think so. Uh, I think people become leaders because they have a great sense of purpose and calling. I don't think most people in schools who lead uh, are egotistical in the sense that they're seeking power for themselves. Uh, and I certainly don't think they become leaders in order to fill in forms. Um, it's very much a people business and an equipping of people uh, and sharing of the vision and a developmental role. And I think that's sustainable uh, because uh, there are great joys and purpose in building into people's lives and seeing the outcomes of that. John, I'm really interested. Uh, uh, you know, you've, you've described this idea that you became a principal sort of very early on in terms of your 30s. You know, if you were to give um, sort of any advice to yourself, uh, again, what would you give yourself? And, and have there been sort of things that have surprised you about the principalship along the way? Um, I don't think I anticipated uh, the, the level of emotional trauma that would occur for people in schools. Um, over my 31 years as a head, um, I've seen nearly 30 students and staff die, um, mostly through road accidents and cancer, and I hadn't anticipated the trauma that that would cause uh, within the communities. I hadn't anticipated the quantum of deaths which I think are simply a function of the statistics of large communities. Uh, so I've had to deal with that, um, and that's been very demanding. Um, that's the, the graver end. Uh, there have also been uh, strange surprises. Uh, for instance, as principal of St Paul's Grammar School, I didn't initially realise that I would be responsible living in the middle of a farm for deciding when to call the vet uh, since Murphy's Law operated and the farm animals only became sick after hours on weekends and in school holidays. And nor did my wife realise that uh, a corollary of the principal's contract would be that she would be midwife to the uh, the sheep and, uh, and the cattle as they gave birth. Uh, so there have certainly been some interesting surprises I think you're describing there some things that you definitely uh, you definitely wouldn't be prepared for. Look, I just want to go back to that point you made there about the, the emotional trauma of the role. I guess that's something that we haven't really dived into a whole lot on on the podcast with with other principals. How do you look back on 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 those incidents? You know, have you learned through each one how to deal with the next one better? And is there any advice or Anything you can kind of uh, share with our listeners that if they're on, if they're an aspiring principal, how might they be prepared for that or think about that in in advance of the role? Because surely we, I mean, we can talk about you know trauma and what it's looked like, but to live through it as a leader is surely you know extremely difficult. Um, in the role as a principal, one needs to steal oneself uh, for dealing with this, uh, and I think the key issues are. It's important to remain calm uh, because other people can't and therefore 
the principal needs to be the voice of stability and the voice of counsel um, and to aim at healing over time the hurt. Um, the principal needs to be the voice of communication in a way that's crystal clear and honest but doesn't breach people's privacy unnecessarily. Um, and sometimes amidst the trauma, um, come to this, I think, later in terms of some of the questions you've suggested, the principal needs to move into a command and control mode. That is to say, in a crisis, it's necessary to absolutely take charge uh, because decisions sometimes have to be made in rapid-fire motion, and it really means giving orders to people, uh, go and do this now and tell me when it's done. So it's necessary to operate, I think, in multiple modes, uh, by which I, I mean calm uh, but decisive, uh, communicative but sensitive, uh, and sadly some experience in doing this uh, makes one better over time. Not that one would want to want to do it very often, but as I say, it's the nature of large communities that there will be catastrophes given enough time. I guess in that context, John, you know, it's almost we've sort of described here and other principles have described being the mayor, I guess, of a small community and you need to be yes. the critical incident controller. Um, you're, you are yes. the educational leader and, you, you know, you are the CEO and you are the you know, risk management compliance officer and the like. How do you, I guess, prioritise so many uh, of the balls that get thrown up in the air being a principal, um, you know, in the context of what you were just describing? Um, given that you can't catch all the balls, or certainly not all at once, uh, it's necessary to work out which ones to catch. That is, which of these are absolutely vital, uh, which of these uh, can't be left to land or they'll explode. Uh, so my rule of thumb is the ones which are strategic need to be caught uh, because that's the future and schools which don't look to the future will go into a dive um, they'll be left behind. Um, secondly, the ones which are urgent must be caught because even though they mightn't be strategic, they have consequences and might blow up if not caught and dealt with. And thirdly, those which relate to community um, must also be well managed because schools are about community and student community, parent community, staff community is, is viable for flourishing. Uh, and if the community isn't kept uh, intact, then the boat becomes very rocky indeed. There are other things which can be deferred or passed out to other people, um, but I think it's important to work out which of those issues really are issues for now. And I guess at the heart of what you're sort of describing too is people. It's a people-centred yes. business, and at the heart of people is, is relationship and um, the importance yes. of shaping and nurturing, um, you know, relationships, knowing that you're working in a community. And the uh, difficulty is that often school councils don't get that because they're about quantifiable metrics. And governors don't get that because they're about utilitarianism. Uh, they're about uh, cogs for the economy. Uh, and so they don't give the primacy to relationships that we do in schools. We're in a people business. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting what you've kind of said there about, uh, I guess, the government's desire for education. Is there anything more you'd like to say about that in terms of the difference between kind of what a government wants for an education system 
versus kind of what a parent or a child might want in terms of that relationship and about growth? Um, I have a university major in politics, um, which has left me, in a sense, knowing too much about the insides of the system and being somewhat cynical about uh, the likelihood of achieving outcomes through politics. Um, my view is that what politicians want is something which will help them win the next election. Uh, so they're operating in short-term cycles and they're much more interested in appearances than substance. Uh, so they will want to identify uh, a um, crisis which may be entirely confected so that they can solve it. And hence, they will suggest on the basis of PISA and NAPLAN results that Australian education is in crisis and hence they provide a description for that. Um, my own view is perhaps somewhat unpopular, uh, which could be summarised as I think that's nonsense. Um, our schools are in, uh, highly successful. I'm not suggesting they're perfect or can't improve, but they're highly successful uh, and fit for purpose in educating the youth of the nation. Um, and we, we see that in terms of the destinations uh, of young people, the quality of young people. Um, we, we should not uh, give any comfort to the political reductionist view that education is actually all about scores in something that's partial and perhaps largely irrelevant. I just want to go sort of scroll, scroll back there, uh, sort of, John, and get back to, you know, the real purpose of schooling and you sort of starting to describe, you know, the, the essence of, of the existence of schools, which is about young people um, and, and their development. And again, we've talked about the, the, the heart of education around sort of relationships and, and perhaps that's missed. But one of the things that I think is interesting um, over time, it's certainly been my experience, is the engagement of parents um, in, in schools. And, you know, that, that idea that it brings great enrichment to the community, um, but it also brings a great deal of challenges. And you, you've sort of spoken about the involvement of parents, um, I guess, in the ecosystem of schools. What might you say about that? Uh, a couple of years ago, I wrote a newsletter to parents uh, about uh, parental aggression. Um, and nothing happened for a month, and then suddenly it went viral internationally, um, much to my astonishment. Uh, and I was alleged to have told parents to chill, uh, which I never actually did. Um, and the irony of this is that uh, here at St. Andrew's Cathedral School in Sydney, we find uh, 98% of, of parents are absolutely delightful. Uh, so my target was the tiny proportion who were not. Um, what I've learned over years uh, in dealing with parents are perhaps the following lessons. Uh, firstly, don't talk to parents if you can avoid it when they're agitated and emotional and angry because nothing productive will come out of that. Uh, for instance, when I suspend a child or when the dentist suspends a child, I don't want to talk to the parents that day or the next day because they're angry and they'll be combative. I want to, to settle for a while so we can have a reasonable discussion so I don't accept early appointments. Um, secondly, when the parent and the child do appear, it's important to work out who's actually in charge. Um, by which I mean, given that so many parents abrogate their role as parents these days, uh, in some cases, there's no use negotiating with the parent while the child sits outside. Uh, it's better than negotiating with the child while the parent sits outside, so to speak, because the child's view will determine the parent's response. So it's important to understand, if you can, in advance the dynamics of the family. 
Um, thirdly, and perhaps very importantly, when I'm going to interview a parent and a child together over something serious, I almost invariably interview the parents separately first, uh, tell them where I intend to go with this, and suggest to them that we need to work together to get to a good outcome. The advantage of that is that it dilutes the fear of the parent that the child's about to be expelled, which uh, might make them very combative in style from the beginning of the interview if they think they had to defend the child against the outcome. And secondly, it dilutes the situation insofar as it offers an alliance where we work together. And so I hope by the time the child enters, the parent or parents and I are on exactly the same page and we can present a united front to the student, which prevents the student doing what he or she will often want to do, which is to divide and conquer. Um, so I think those are useful principles. They don't always work, uh, but I've found good success over years in approaching matters in that way. Look, I just want to go back to, a, I guess, just a comment, a couple of um, questions ago, and that was around, I guess, the, um, the total number of elements of a, of a principal's role. Um, I saw that you commented a few years ago around that principals need to realise that the job is so huge that it's not actually always doable in all its dimensions. And if that's the case, all we can do is our best. But obviously, when you're a new leader, you're actually trying to do everything well. Have you got any advice, you know, with your experience around how do you reconcile that you can't do everything at 100% and that some things, you know, some balls may get dropped, to use our early analogy, or that at some stages you might not be able to do everything to the best of your ability. Yes, I'd go further and say the job is never doable in its full dimensions. It's too huge. It's too huge for one person. Uh, and the days of solo, heroic, Olympian uh, authority of leadership are gone. Uh, schools are complex organisms, and there are a whole lot of elements uh, that come across the principles list that didn't exist a generation ago within the vision of principles. So I would argue it's it's essential to work out what's most important in this season of a school's life. In different seasons, some things will be more important than others, but at other times, uh, the priority order will be different. It's also important to work out what can usefully and reasonably be delegated elsewhere so that the principal can save time by... Uh, scaffolding and reviewing the work of somebody else rather than trying to do it all personally. And I think it's important to have the mindset, I'm going to do the very best I can. I'm not going to be perfect or do everything equally well because if one aims at perfection and comprehensive excellence across all areas, one ends up beating oneself up because it's not achievable. Um, so I, I would argue for the need to have a realistic uh, apprehension of what one person can do and what one's own strengths are. Um, it's good to play to your strengths where you can while also trying to develop in other areas. Um, but it's not possible to launch out in all areas simultaneously. Uh, there just isn't enough time. And that's some, you know, I guess some great insights into the, re the realities um, of the principalship and, and I, I guess also a pragmatic approach. You've given us sort of some great insights into to the way to approach things. And I guess, you know, one of the questions that we ask, ask a lot in, in the podcast is, well, if things are so complex in the principalship, if things are actually um, 
not doable in its entirety, what does um, good principle formation look like? What does good training and uh, for an aspirant leader look like? And, you know, we've talked about the, the benefits of, of doing a master's or, a, you know, a, an MBA or like yourself, a PhD. What do you think are uh, some, some good ways of, of, I guess, looking at principle formation in this country? Um, increasingly, the principle is being the CEO. Um, in some ways, that's sad because it takes away from the primacy of educational leadership. And I find that a lot of educational leadership I have to see to a deputy, uh, partly because my role is too global to be able to do all that, but also because over time, my currency doesn't remain as I'm not dealing with that day to day. And so my skills uh, become somewhat outmoded. Uh, so in terms of the possible uh, degree pathways, I'll give you three answers, which will then lead towards one. Um, my heart says the best preparation is a master's degree in education. Uh, education is our core business. It's our bread and butter. It's our passion. It's what we do. Um, my intellect says do a PhD uh, because to dig deep into something is very, very helpful. But my pragmatic brain, and this is my overall answer, is the MBA is probably the most helpful preparation right now um, because, in a sense, what a principal is going to be called to do is somewhat like company leadership. Uh, and I think those principals that meet with CEOs within the for-profit sector uh, are surprised to find how many commonalities there actually are. Uh, these days, principles have to be across risk and law and finance and HR and all the rest of it. So I think probably, and I say this with some reluctance and some sadness, the MBA is probably the first path to go um, if there is only one path that's possible in terms of time, then that's probably the most useful in a pragmatic leadership sense these days. John, you talked uh, just there around surrounding yourself with you know, deputies and, and I guess delegating uh, some of the, the responsibilities that maybe previously the, the, the head or the principal had. Um, have you got any, any thoughts on how you discern what's going to be your responsibility as, as the principal and what you decide to delegate? Uh, yes, um, I'm a great delegator, uh, not because I'm looking for an easy life, but because I want to build capacity uh, in emerging senior leaders. And so my rule of thumb is I only do those things which only the principal can do. Um, that is, those things which require the gravitas of positional authority uh, of the principal's office. Uh, now, some of those I may have particular skill in. Um, some, arguably, I may not, uh, but they're things that, only the principal can do. Uh, so I seek to delegate absolutely everything else. Um, and I'm fortunate in having deputies who are able to, to manage highly complex uh, issues. To try and do everything yourself uh, is a recipe for a nervous breakdown. And I've seen some principals head down that path because... They wanted to do everything personally and or micromanage uh, the key leaders. My view is uh, select the right people, um, unleash and empower them, give them the authority to act, 
Um, and the best way, in fact, to enhance the power and reach of the organisation is to give the power away, uh, to give it to other people. I think uh, that so element of I'm, authority to act is really interesting. Yes. Because I think in a school, you know, particularly in a, in a middle leadership capacity or, or even in an executive, there's sometimes that element of deferring to someone else and not yes. necessarily understanding where the line is drawn around when you have the responsibility to act or not. Do you, do you go about that in a, in a very direct manner? I make clear to people uh, that they have uh, very significant delegated authority. So if they come and check with me whether they can do something, I'm inclined to say to them, you don't have to ask me permission. You have the authority. I appreciate at some stage being briefed on what's happened, um, but you can embark on that course of action without reference to me because that's your prerogative. And I imagine staff feel quite empowered uh, when you speak to them like that. Well, yes, because it recognises their skill and their capacity and their seniority and it gives them a platform to act uh, authoritatively with other staff uh, because it becomes plain that they don't need to come and seek permission from the principal's office. They already have the permission. John, one of the things that you've sort of also described now beyond, I guess, authority is that, that desire but also the imperative to grow your leaders. Um, yes. And and for me, that's I guess, sits in, in an element of what servant leadership looks like as we, um, you know, we're actually serving our people well if we're growing them, if you like. Um, and that perhaps sits alongside that notion of distributed leadership and command and control and authority when you need those things. How would you describe, I guess, servant leadership in, in your own style and approach? Servant leadership is the mindset that we're here to serve our community and not ourselves. So the school's not about me. Um, and my own view is... I'm not important in myself. I have a role to play which, in fact, maximises others, whether they be children or staff or parents. Um, but servant leadership is not the same as servile leadership. Uh, that is to say, I don't regard myself as a doormat for people to walk on. Servant leadership sometimes means being authoritative for people's best interests, sometimes even when they don't recognise what their best interests are. Uh, so servant leadership really is focusing on the goal of what it's all about. And I don't regard it as in any way incompatible with distributive leadership uh, because I think we serve our leaders by giving them authority. But I would say that it's probably not wise to only embrace one leadership model or one leadership theory as if that fits all situations. Leaders need to be agile in terms of the state of their school and what's happening at any particular time. So depending on the experience and competence of the executive, uh, the principal will need to be more or less directive. And at times, as I mentioned earlier, when there's a crisis, the principal will have to step into command and control mode and, and seize control uh, because... Uh, sometimes there are literally lives at stake uh, or some major issue that must be dealt with and resolved uh, authoritatively, decisively and in a timely way. So it's a matter of discerning what mode of leadership is required in particular situations at particular times. And I guess I just want to dive in a little deeper there on something you said around 
um, serving for their best interests. Um, obviously, sometimes people don't know it's in their best interests at the time. Has your experience been that in a lot of cases, people will come back to you later and go, oh, thank you for that, even though I didn't see it at the time. Um, I, I do appreciate what you were doing at that point. Yes. Uh, the most common experience of that is uh, when one insists that students actually do real work rather than waste their time. And although that may not be attractive to a teenager brain at that moment, often when it works and they uh, apply the necessary attention to study and get into the university course they want, uh, the penny drops that this has actually been for their good and uh, gives them the pathway. And they're very grateful uh, for being led by the nose, as it were, or pursued with vigour to make sure that they actually achieve those outcomes. And for staff, same thing? Uh, yes, um, Sometimes staff are rather ambivalent about taking on a task because they think it's beyond them. And when they find that they can do it and do it successfully and they've grown through it and they have a platform for further growth, uh, they are retrospectively grateful for that, uh, even though it wasn't apparent at the time. So, John, you've, you've kind of, we've been unpacking, the, I guess, the complexity and the challenges of principalship um, but what are the great possibilities and opportunities um, for principalship? What, what's the good stuff? What's the, the stuff that really ignites and gives you life? I get great pleasure out of seeing kids do well, uh, well in any sense. It might be um, performing brilliantly musically or dramatically. It might be academic success. It might be artistic uh, achievement. Uh, it might be that that child that was close to expulsion has uh, turned his or her approach around and has graduated brilliantly. Uh, it might be that uh, if you're going to be there for a long time, you enrol the child in kindergarten um, and then see them graduate and feel um, very privileged to share in a small way uh, their, their life journey. Um, it might be seeing staff grow uh, from young staff uh, to people who are undertaking senior leadership. I think all those things are great joys and we need to, to experience those successes and those pleasures in order to keep us going and help us through the hard times because uh, some things with which principles deal are, are huge joys and delights and others are actually tragic. Look, I guess on that note, I just want to go back to uh, when you started at St Andrews and you became the head of the Guru School. Can you talk to us about that experience and you know what that's meant to the to the hundreds of students who've attended uh, the primary school there? Gawara is an all Aboriginal city-based school, and when I arrived, it was just up and running, and. It's very difficult uh, to conduct Aboriginal education well because the Aboriginal community are used to generations of alienation and dispossession and poverty and uh, have learned to be somewhat distrustful of patronising efforts to assist them, uh, which determine without consultation with them what's good for them. Uh, so it's difficult to get underway and to, to undertake the program well. Um, here we're in our 15th year of running the program for Gawara and it's been transformative for many of our students uh, where their parents may not have 
had been educated beyond year nine or even beyond year six, uh, some of them uh, have developed uh, comprehensive and fabulous skills. For instance, one's now in the second year of PhD studies, another one's just returned from Oxford University with a master's degree in one of the health sciences, uh, another one has just graduated with arts law. Uh, our most recent graduate has just got uh, distinctions, high distinctions in first-year medicine. Um, so there, there are great successes. And for these families, the education of their children uh, gives them the chance to break the cycle uh, of generational unemployment and poverty and despair. Uh, so it's, it's a good thing. Uh, it's not always successful. Uh, we have attrition, uh, but where it works and works fabulously, uh, it's it's uh, an attempt at reconciliation and, and Christian social justice on our patch uh, with our own local Aboriginal community. We often talk about um, you know the, the journey that we're all on um, to to move towards a reconciled country um, between our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, peoples um, and non-Indigenous peoples. Well, how might you describe uh, reconciled, uh, I guess, Australia, and 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 what are the other steps that we can take along along the journey? Um, reconciliation means really listening to Aboriginal voices, uh, not listening in the sense that we already understand them or that we will know better. Um, we have uh, an Aboriginal member of school council who is actually a, a Christian pastor, and to him. Reconciliation is not about the end point as such, so that we have a nice document. It's about the journey and the learning on the journey. And his email tagline is, forgiveness is not remembering the past. And when you think about that through Aboriginal eyes, that's tremendously powerful. So reconciliation, I think, is accepting that whites have done incredible wrongs over uh, more than 200 years to Indigenous people and while we may not have been personally responsible, we acknowledge that those wrongs were committed and we want to be reconciled um, as uh, the descendants of white civilization with Aboriginal people such that we actually get to equal outcomes in areas like health and education. And we acknowledge Aboriginal culture uh, and Aboriginal learning and eventually we move to a situation where uh, all of that is mainstream such that race is invisible uh, because it doesn't matter. Uh, that would be a future we'd all like to see. Um, yes. And it's not right on a doorstep now, but it's aspirational. I completely agree. Yeah, and just, uh, I guess, uh, what a great challenge but opportunity for us in the education sector to to shape, um, to nurture, um, you know, a future um, that is a, is a reconciled one. Um, and and I guess um, what you're describing is the, the great privilege and honour it is to, to shape um, social, cultural discourse um, and indeed political discourse. Well, I think uh, some people are sort of at the point end of doing this where... Um, they're, they're doing something that might be scalable and replicable elsewhere. Um, our difficulty is that we've been talking for decades about justice in educational outcomes for Aboriginal people, but the metrics have barely moved. 
so we need to do more than just talk about it uh, and actually find ways of implementation. John, I want to take a little left turn just before we start to think about wrapping up. I read on your bio that uh, you stated that you encourage or permit respectful dissent. It might seem to some listeners a little unusual that a school leader might choose to embrace uh, a little bit of dissent. Uh, well, I suppose so. Um, and it happens uh, on two levels, uh, that is with staff and students. Let's talk about staff first. Uh, in senior management meetings, I encourage staff to be forthright. Uh, I've seen in previous decades too much groupthink in schools where people agreed with everybody because that was nice and pleasant and avoided possible bumps. Uh, but it failed to address real issues because it didn't it didn't introduce discordant thoughts which might have taken the school forward. So I want uh, senior staff within the confines of a meeting to say whatever they like, to express any view, um, obviously respectfully of people, but to shake the cage uh, and to suggest other ways. And my own view as principal is if other people have better ideas than I have, I'll certainly adopt them and give them the credit. Uh, I think that's the way that we all grow. Um, an example would be in my first school uh, 25 more years ago, uh, about twice a year in the afternoon, the deputy would come into my office, shut the door and say to me, you're wrong. Um, what you want to do is absolutely incorrect uh, and these are the reasons. And because it was only occasional and because I had such a high opinion uh, of him, it was fairly riveting and I always uh, gave way to his view because I thought, well, if Jeff thinks so strongly about this uh, and if he's thought about it in depth, he's almost certainly correct, so let's go his way. Um, so I think that's really important in a school to, to be shaken up with ideas and perspectives. As far as the students are concerned, uh, we're a Christian school, but we don't seek to be an indoctrinated Christian school. And therefore, we want students to be able to say, I don't agree with that, and to express dissent. And so we allow students to ask challenging questions in chapel and even challenge guest speakers and give the rationale for why they completely disagree with, what, with what's uh, the core message of the address. Uh, and we expect speakers to be able to respond to that uh, in, in the spirit of good dialogue. Uh, similarly, if students don't like some aspect of school policy as it applies to them, they're encouraged to say so and say why and suggest solutions that in their view would be better. And if the executive can be convinced that the students are right, then we'll actually change the policy. And I think it's giving students voice, it's giving them agency, it's recognising uh, their growth towards adult maturity. It, it's recognising that they might have superior wisdom to staff in some areas. Now, this kind of dissent is not the kind of dissent that uh, is uh, dismissive of persons or, uh, or undermining of authority or, or personhood. It's dissent expressed in the realm of ideas uh, so they can be reasonably. And it's that, you know, respectful exchange of ideas um, develops yes. greater synergies but also develops greater greater decision-making, I guess, and outcomes. Yes, yes, indeed. And as we uh, sort of come to a, to a close, um, John, you sort of described very early on in our discussion 
um, the longevity of the role. Um, and so what are the things that you uh, do to sort of take care of yourself? Where do you find solace and strength um, to continually give of yourself? I've abandoned the idea of work-life balance um, on the grounds that it's not achievable uh, for a principal and certainly principal of a school with Saturday sport and Sunday with choruses in cathedral. Um, to aim at work-life balance is a recipe for mental health difficulties. I aim instead at work-life meaning and fulfilment. And so I've actually done the opposite of what most people seek to do. I've attempted to integrate all my life together. So, for instance, church um, is where we find a lot of our staff and parents and students because that brings all of life together. I've educated my own children and now my grandchildren in school where I was principal uh, because it brings life together and avoids the segmentation and fragmentation where I might feel guilty that I'm not giving other parts of life uh, due attention. Uh, my wife is involved in the school, um, which actually in some ways strengthens our marriage because we can do things together. Uh, so I think I look for meaning and fulfillment uh, in integration and that itself um, is refreshing in terms of life as a unity and a whole uh, rather than discordant bits that clash against one another where I can't do uh, justice to all those areas. Uh, where I take time off, um, I'm very strict with myself in switching off completely. So I won't talk about school, I won't think about school, I won't go into my own study at home where my school physically sits. Um, I'm off duty. I'm relaxing, um, and that means I dress down on those occasions. Um, so there's that sort of physical aspect of being off duty, um, and I make sure that when I actually go on holidays, uh, that is annual leave, I do something really refreshing and preferably uh, stretching, uh, like uh, extensive bushwalking or something of that kind, uh, where. I'm removed from the situation and in a different environment uh, where I'm thinking about different things uh, and hence having a break. Some great advice there and I, and I really I really like that work-life meaning uh, comment there and I think that's something that I might go away and think about a little bit more. Just before we wrap up, John, we've got our segment called Quickfire 5, which is a kind of a one word or one idea uh, that we run through. So I'm going to crack into that. One trait all leaders must have. Perseverance. One word to describe your perfect executive team? Collegial. One measure of a strong school culture? Community. What does student success look like? Destinations, um, by which I mean academic destinations, pathways, and what kind of people they are as products of the school. One book worth reading? There's a forthcoming book by Dr. Paul Burgess, uh, who is principal of PLC Croydon, Presbyterian Ladies College Croydon in New South Wales, uh, which I've seen in draft and which is going to shake up the education system. Great. And he's arguing that doesn't have a title yet, so people have to wait for a year until it appears. He's arguing that schools and therefore principals should aim at the good. That is not the utilitarian mode of education, but at what, what is good. Uh, thought about uh, in terms of a broad definition and multiple uh, uh, hemispheres of, of what is good. 
Sounds like it will be an interesting read. And the last question, who would you like to hear us interview on Ed Leaders? Uh, Dr. Brian is Scott, uh, the principal of Winona, um, is capable of uh, shaking up the system in a very helpful way. Um, she has great ideas. She's a great leader. Uh, I think she would be very worth interviewing. Great. We'll have to reach out to her. John, that brings to an end our, our show for today. Um, listeners, I hope you've enjoyed our chat about leadership uh, and uh, I guess a wide variety of topics with John. I know I've personally found a lot of value in our chat today and it's given me some food for thought about you know the calmness and listening to your team and, as I said in the last, last bit there, work-life meaning, which I think is really interesting. John, thanks again for giving up your time to be on the show and share Pleasure. your experiences Pleasure. with us. Uh, I hope my random ravings have been of some help. Absolutely have. Um, it isn't every day we get to hear from uh, someone uh, such as yourself. Uh, for the audience out there, John, where can they connect with you? Uh, St Andrews Cathedral School, Sydney. Uh, the uh, email addresses are all consistent as per the website, uh, so that would be the best one. Great. Remember, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show using your favourite podcast app and leave us a review. You can also sign up uh, at edleaders.com.au or follow Ed Leaders on LinkedIn. John, thank you again. Matt, any closing comments? Uh, what great privilege, John, to, to chat with you today and I certainly do thank you uh, for the opportunity. Thanks very much, Matt and Luke. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next week. Go well. 